So Father, our prayer this morning is that you would indeed feed us through your words. We cry to you for help. We ask for the eyes to see, for the hearts to understand, and the wills, Father, to obey. Encourage our hearts and enable us today by your spirit, because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Edvard Munch's painting, The Scream, is probably one of the most iconic human figures in the history of Western art, second only to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. It was conceived as part of Munch's semi-autobiographical cycle called The Freeze of Life. And in this composition, he explores the relationship between life and death and hope and dread. You can see it's a surprisingly simple composition, but the colors are such that maximum attention is drawn to the face. There are three main areas, the bridge, and then the water, the shoreline, the hills, and the sky. But the colors are very graphic, and orange meets a blue with a red green. And at the center of the picture is an androgynous skull-shaped face elongated hands, wide eyes and flaring nostrils, an ovid mouth, a swirling blue landscape, all of which, against the yellow sky, depict a scene of terror and despair. A passage in Munch's diary dated January the 22nd, 1892, perhaps provides something of an explanation for this extraordinary piece of arts. He writes this. I was walking along the, the road with two friends when the sun went down, and suddenly I felt a gust of melancholy. Suddenly the sky turned a bloody red. I stopped, leaned against the railing, tired to death, as the flaming sky hung above me like blood and sword over the blue field in the city. My friends went on, I stood there trembling with anxiety, and then I felt a vast, infinite scream tear through nature. This composition stands as one of the ultimate pictures of anxiety and dreads, of aloneness and terror in a hostile world. And this, if we're honest, is how we often feel this is a dangerous world, a frightening universe. And every day we feel defenseless in the face of multiple threats, alienated, adrift, despairing, lost. So some people turn to political visionaries. We vote for the next president in hope. Others turn to the psychiatrist's couch or to distractions the skiing slopes or the Florida beaches. Others of us bury ourselves into the solidarity of family life or in the distraction of my career. But if we're honest, we are afraid. Dante wrote this, I woke up in the wood and it was dark and there was no clear way before me. And the French atheist philosopher Albert Camus, one is still what one is going to cease to be, and is already what one is going to become. One lives one's death and dies one's life. 
So are you despairing? Screaming in despair. Because this morning is great news as we see once again that the answer to our emptiness and aloneness is found in one figure, Jesus Christ alone. And that whatever our despair or need, he will meet us and save us as we find our hope in him alone. Well, we've got three points. I can see that the first one is already behind me. God the Redeemer is here first with a gut-wrenching compassion. The picture as we turn to Mark 6 verse 30 is one of mass hysteria as an enormous crowd now appears around Jesus. It's almost as if one of the photographers from the paparazzi have noticed this, this celebrity and his team and they rush the media pack towards him, much as we might if we saw Tom Hanks or uh, the United States president arriving. But in verse 34, the camera pans from the crowd in this mass hysteria to Jesus. And it's as if the camera focuses in on Jesus' face. As Mark now tells us, first, what Jesus feels what Jesus sees, and what Jesus does. Verse 34, what does he feel as he sees this crowd's compassion? But the Greek is really striking. This is not human empathy. It's not that he feels sorry for the crowds. The Greek word is very strong. It's a word that is only ever used in the New Testament of Jesus. It's not a human word. It's a divine word. It is a word that conjures up the very pity of God. The word is literally in the Greek. He feels a stomach-churning love. Or if you like, a gut-wrenching compassion. This is the word we might use of the child watching the death of an elderly parent. Or flip it the other way around, the agony, the gut-wrenching agony of a parent at the deathbeds of a child. What Jesus feels is a, is a gut-churning, a sickening pain, why? because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament and in the ancient world, that word shepherd is a royal title. It was used of kings in the ancient world because the great task and mandate of the king was to lead and to protect. It's the first duty of government, the defense of the realm, the protection of the people. So as Jesus sees that these people are without a shepherd, what he's really recognizing is that they are defenseless, prey to the predator. This is the most terrifying picture of all, a directionless, defenseless people at the mercy of the predator and of the culture. In fact, that's America today, isn't it? Americans live like tumbleweeds in the wind, We will believe anything and follow anyone. But that verse, a group of sheep, a flock without a shepherd, is a a key reminder and an echo of the Old Testament because in Numbers 
27 verse 15, Moses requests that God doesn't leave the people as sheep without a shepherd, as he prays that God would raise up a shepherd. And then in Ezekiel 34, in exile, God promises that one day he will provide his scattered, broken, bruised flock, a shepherd-like king of David's line who would deliver and heal and restore and save. Listen to this. Ezekiel 34. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered in a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own lands. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and in the ravines and in the settlements. I will tend them in good pasture and in the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing lands. They will lie down in good grazing lands and I will feed them in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and they will lie down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. In the Old Testament, the picture of salvation is of gathering. The picture of judgment is of scattering. So the flock has been scattered in exile, under judgment, and now the great promise is that God will come through his king to gather, to save, to restore. What Jesus feels, gut-wrenching compassion. What he sees, sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? Verse 35, he preached the gospel to them. Because what Jesus sees is not that they are educationally struggling, so they need education, or that there's a socioeconomic problem, so that they need economical help. What God provides is not a teacher or an economist. It's not a psychiatric thing that needs a counselor. The problem is infinitely worse. It is that this is a flock in sin and under the judgment of God. So it's not that they need counseling or better education or socioeconomic help. It is that they need salvation. So what does he do? But preach the gospel to them. The gospel, the announcement of Jesus' victory over sin, applied to the sinner as we trust in the word of the gospel, that through his perfect life and sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, this flock, this lost sheep, this lost flock, gathered through the words of the gospel. It's our first point, a gut-wrenching compassion. But here's our second. God the Redeemer is here with a a gut-wrenching compassion. Secondly, to lead a new exodus. The story is told of Muhammad Ali, famous for his boasting about himself. He was once uh, on an airplane and the stewardess came and said, would you mind putting your seatbelt on? He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Whereupon, as quick as a flash, she responded, Superman don't need no plane. Put it on. (laughs) Well, what kind of a redeemer is Jesus? 
a gut-wrenching compassion here to gather the flock, but, but can he pull it off is the skeptic's question. And before him is quite a crowd. If you look down to verse 44, there are 5,000 men. But the Greek literally means 5,000 adult males. So we're not including the women or the children. So if we do include the women and the children, it's quite a big flock. I'm wondering whether it's 10, 15, 20, 25 to 30 to 35,000. This is a vast swathe of humanity now gathered around Jesus. I wonder if the picture is perhaps borrowed from the Ukrainian-Polish border as vast columns of people now gather in a desperate plight for rescue and help. And in verse 35, it's getting late. The uh, crowd is still hanging around. So the disciples say, Jesus, tell them to go home now, please, we beg you. Because there's no Aldi anywhere near. There's no Wegmans or Giants. There isn't even a Wawa anywhere near. But in verse 35, Jesus makes the most extraordinary request as he tells them, the disciples, you go and find them something to eat. They look at this crowd, 25, 30,000. They do the math. They get out their calculator. And they come back and they say, but this will cost us 200 denarii, which is around a year's salary. We can't afford it. We don't have the resources to do it. It is humanly impossible. And if you've ever organized a catering event where you've planned for 30 and then 100 people arrive, you know something of the stress of the situation. And I'm picturing the crying babies and children and the people who are hangry because they're angry and hungry. Why does he ask, you do it? And the answer is because Jesus needs to show us that we can't pull this one off. If this picture is going to stand as the picture of redemption, the point is that it's not something that we can achieve. The point is that we are helpless and it's only as we understand our helplessness that we will ever look to him. We are at the end of ourselves, but if you like, it's only when we are at the end of ourselves that we will discover that Jesus is at the other end. The picture is of a second exodus, of a redemption, of the ultimate redemption, of the ultimate exodus from sin and slavery, from the judgment of God, to the life of the new heavens and the new earth, which God has promised in this shepherd king, Jesus Christ. And all of the indications are that this is the second exodus. Look at the location, where are we? But in the wilderness, just like the people of Israel. And the wilderness is the place where the prophets met God. And then look at the numbers as they sit down in hundreds and fifties. All of that reminds us of Israel in Exodus 18, the blessing and the breaking and the giving in the groups. And then notice the details in the text. Mark says, the grass was green, which is a very strange detail to include. 
but not if you know your Bibles. What Mark is telling us is that this prophet is the king, the shepherd of Psalm 23, the world's favorite psalm. What is the promise of Psalm 23 but that he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. The grass is green. And actually, we're about to switch to the lake, which is about to burst into turbulent storm, but then he will kill it and calm it. Green pastures and a calm sea, all of which is the promise of Ezekiel 34, that this shepherd will feed his flock on the rich grazing pastures. It's often said that the grass on the other side is always greener, but not if you're a Christian. This is the king who will always feed, always provide, always protect, always bless, often in ways we don't realize. Verse 41 is charged with drama as now Jesus takes the loaves, just a few fish and a few pieces of bread. But of course, they can't. So what about Jesus, verse 41, as he takes the basket? Verse 41, charged with drama, all eyes upon this king now. As he prays and looks to heaven, almost certainly he prays a Jewish prayer called the uh, homotzi, which is the blessing of God, enabling uh, bread to come from the earth. Uh, A Jewish man would pray this regularly at the meal, Almost certainly he prays, blessed are you, Lord God, ruler of the universe who brings forth breads from the earth. And then, and then comes the miracle as bread now supernaturally appears like manna from heaven for a lost people starving in the wilderness. The miracle is astonishing as one man feeds not the 5,000. I'm reckoning this is the feeding of the 25,000. As bread from heaven flows from Jesus, nourishing, sustaining, protecting, and rescuing the people. Of course, the rational mind can't handle this. Some years ago, there was a rationalistic liberal school of scholars called the Jesus Seminar, and they tried to explain this miracle away. There are two theories. The first is that Jesus had carefully pre-prepared the whole event. For weeks, if not months, he and his disciples had gone to the desert and squirreled bread in the caves. And then what happens is that Jesus stands at the front in his flowing robes, and behind him is a chain as the disciples in buckets um, funnel the bread forward underneath his robes. One of the disciples is underneath one of his robes, and then the bread just keeps sort of appearing as the disciples in a chain bring it forward from the pre-prepared cave. The whole thing is, if you like, uh, a rabbit out of a hat. Uh, Here is the magician. It's all an elaborate, fraudulent hoax. You can believe that if you want to. The other theory is this. Um, The crowds had all arrived with their sack lunches. And so when Jesus says, well, where's the food? Actually, the crowds did share with one another. So there is a miracle, but the real miracle isn't Jesus' miracle, but the ethical miracle. It's a moral miracle. 
as the crowds show the virtue of their own hearts, sharing and sharing alike, but it doesn't withstand the text because there is no food. Now, this is a miracle of God through Jesus, his providential care in the now, sustaining God's people to the ends. The bread stands as the covenant pledge of God. This is the God who will provide in the now, ready for the ends. The bread is Jesus as he gives by himself, of himself. Coca-Cola is now operational in over 200 different countries. It's an extraordinary success story. And some years ago, they had an extraordinary mission statement, which was this, to satisfy the thirst of the whole world, one drink at a time. But Coca-Cola can't do that. Neither can your career, or your sex life, or your marriage, or your friends. We seek satisfaction in all sorts of other things, but it's like taking a drug. There is the amazing high, and then the crash. As we seek to find this this redemption, this this satisfaction in other places, it's like drinking salt water. It, It feels as though we're being satisfied, but we can't be. Some years ago, Mick Jagger had that song, um, Satisfaction. It was published in 1965, and it is a real cri de coeur, a cry of the heart. I can't get no satisfaction, but but I've tried. And later on, he said this in 1965, satisfaction was my view of the world, my frustration with everything, my disgust, he said, with America, its advertising syndrome, the constant barrage. Well, nothing's changed since then. As the adverts tell us, you can find it, whatever it is, here in whatever here is. But look at verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. For this is God's saving king, the redeemer. And if you'll come to him and keep trusting in him, he is sufficient, not the Virgin Mary. Not in any other religion like Islam. It is to Jesus and Jesus alone we must come. And this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, which I think is more like the feeding of the 25,000, is the only miracle, did you know this, recorded in all four Gospels. Because this is the miracle we need to see. This is the miracle we need to grasp. That this is the Jesus in the wilderness of exile and judgment who will, if you trust in him, fully satisfy and fully redeem you in his covenant love in the now for the land of the new creation. Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied because God the Redeemer is here with a a gut-wrenching compassion to lead a new exodus. And our third and last point, bringing a powerful deliverance. The ocean is the second most dangerous workplace on the planet. I did some reading on this this week. Commercial seafaring is considered to be the second most dangerous occupation in the world. The first is deep sea diving. 
And every year, over 2,000 people will lose their lives in commercial shipping around the world. Drowning at sea is the third leading cause of unintended death. And according to the uh, World Health Organization, 8% of global mortality is through death at sea. A staggering 236,000 people this year will die in the waves or the waters of the planet. So what now happens is we switch scene from the wilderness, a place of threats, to the lake, the Sea of Galilee, another place of terror and threat. Verse 45, Jesus says to his disciples, go ahead in the boat to Bethsaida. And Jesus heads up onto the hillside, verse 46, to pray. Interestingly, Mark only records Jesus praying three times. And on each occasion, it's because of a real crisis. Uh, One is in Gethsemane, the crisis of the cross. But what's the crisis now? It's this. He's just fed the 5,000, so they see something of his redemption, of his kingship, but they haven't seen or understood the kind of king he really is. They see that he is a leader, that he is somehow a king that will provide, but they haven't understood the kind of provision at all. So now we switch from the wilderness to the waves because we need to understand the kind of power, but also the shape of the rescue of this extraordinary king. It is not local, but universal. Not political, but spiritual. It's not temporal, but eternal. And to make the point in verse 47, we now reach a desperate situation. Have a look at verse 47. It's evening now. The boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them. At the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and intended to pass by them. For the Jew, the waves stand as the ultimate picture of cosmic evil. This is a terrifying picture. The restlessness of the waves, the relentlessness of the waters as the waves now soar and as the waters crash in on the boat in the middle of the night around 3 a.m. Verse 45, helpless humanity straining at the oars. But that word in the Greek isn't straining. Again, Mark uses a very serious word. Verse 48, they're not straining at the oars. They are literally tormented at the oars. Or if you like, they are tortured at the oars. This is the picture of humanity. It's us in the boat, tormented and tortured by the full weight and barrage of cosmic evil and sin and the judgment of God against us. The ferocity of this storm on the Sea of Galilee is the picture of the ferocity of life that we face. And the Sea of Galilee was really a a bowl, 700 meters below sea level. And it was famous for these kind of storms and hurricanes. So here they are in this this bowl as, as the elements And as the storm crash around them, the plight is horrific. It's DEFCON 1, clear threat. 
to life. Torture. Third watch of the nights. One more angry wave. And they're finished. Utter desperation. As they prepare to descend to their watery graves. They have no power. No resources of their own. There is nothing they can do. So where's the shepherd now? And it's a great pastoral question, isn't it? Because maybe you are sensing that you are in that place. So where's the shepherd now? Is he up on the hill, up in heaven, praying on his own? Or is he really with, with us? I'm wondering if that's the question of the disciples as they, as they prepare for their deaths. And then, in another moment of explosive drama, they, they see something on the horizon. It's three o'clock in the morning, the swell is building up, the moon perhaps is silhouetting, but there's this, this figure in the haze, in the mist, a shadowy figure, verse 49, walking towards them. It actually compounds their terror even further because verse 49, they say, it's a ghost. But the Greek could equally be, it's a demon. It probably is a demon because the Jews thought that the sea was the abode of evil spirits. It's a demon. And they were terrified, and they cried out, verse 50. But suddenly they see it's not a demon, but God's king. But in Job, only God can walk on the waters, who alone spreads out the heavens and walks upon the waves of the sea. The figure is God the creator, the shepherd of Psalm 23, who has come to still the waters and to be with us even in the darkest valley of the deepest, darkest darkness. The picture is of subjugation as Jesus, in the face of this terror, literally walks above the waters with his mastery and power and authority and rule. This is God the creator with power over evil as at his command, once again, the storm is subdued. But there's a very strange thing to notice. He was about to pass by them. And at first it sounds so pastorally insensitive. Here they are drowning and he was about to pass by them. But the smart Bible student will know that that phrase, pass by, was the exact same phrase that was read out earlier on from Exodus 33 as Michael read it to us which is the very phrase that is used of Yahweh when Moses says, show me your glory. When the American president passes by, you can't miss it. There are over 40 to 45 SUVs, police outriders, US flags, there's an ambulance, and then the beast appears with the president inside it. You can't miss the president, POTUS, passing by. And actually, you can't miss God passing by either. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will pass by you and show you my goodness and love. The glory of God is seen in the character of God. It is seen in the name of God. It is seen in the salvation of God. 
What does it mean for God to pass by but to show us his glory? But what is the glory of God? And the answer is his salvation and his character. And so Jesus says, it is I, literally, it is I, it is I, or if you like, it is I am, I am, ego imi, literally, it is Yahweh, I am, I am Yahweh. And now Yahweh does what Yahweh promises he will do as he intervenes to save these disciples heading to their watery graves in a picture of absolute salvation as he pulls them out and saves them from death. A gut-wrenching compassion. As he leads a new exodus, bringing a powerful deliverance. Augustine, he came treading the waves, and so he puts all the swelling tumults of life under his feet, If we know that he is personally present with us in the middle of the storm, Christian, why afraid? And the place where he calms the storm, the place where he feeds us, is of course on that first Good Friday at Calvary. One of Rembrandt's finest ever portraits, you can Google this later and check it out for yourself, is an extraordinary composition called The Three Crosses. It was uh, painted in 1655. It took him two years. But it's not oil on canvas or a watercolor. It's um, actually done on a copper plate, which is extraordinary. And in this uh, piece, he explores light versus darkness, The Three Crosses. And so we have long strokes of light coming in onto the cross where Jesus is dying, but the foregrounds and the background is dark. The three crosses, as Jesus dies with the two thieves next to him, it's an emotional composition as we see the light of heaven breaking down onto Jesus, the perfect son of God. But there's a very interesting detail in the composition, as you look to the left and you see this this figure watching, and art critics know that that figure is the figure of Rembrandt himself. He's in the painting, looking on as Jesus dies, because what Rembrandt is saying in the darkness of Good Friday, as the light of Christ and his perfection breaks in, he's dying for me, for my sin and my guilt. This is the redemption of Jesus, a gut-wrenching compassion as he he leads this, this new exodus, as he brings this powerful deliverance from the chaos of death and darkness. The king is here, and if you're not a Christian, today would be a great day to turn to him and place your faith in him. And if you are a Christian, sinking in the boat, as the waves emotionally, perhaps even physically or psychologically crash in on you, facing temptation and despair, turn to the Jesus who walks on the water and who saves you by his covenant grace. At the heart of London, there is a a station called Charing Cross. And I don't know if you know this, but all distances in London are measured from that, the epicenter. Locals refer to it simply as the cross. One day, a a child uh, was lost uh, in the 
bursting metropolis. And a police officer found this crying child and said, well, where are your, uh, where is your mom and where is your dad? And, and where, where do they leave you and where is the family and where do you need to get to? And as this boy cried and wept, he suddenly said this, if you can get me back to the cross, I will know my way from there. And it's the same for us. If you can just get me back to the cross, I know my way from there. Because this shepherd of gut-wrenching compassion leads this new exodus with a powerful deliverance. At the cross, Christian, keep trusting. And if you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is a shepherd king with a gut-wrenching compassion that he has come to lead this new exodus from sin and judgments, that in him and him alone, a new and mighty deliverance is secured. We praise you, we thank you, and we adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.